This is the award-winning show, The Big Electron. I'm Jackie. And I'm Anahita. Thank you for subscribing. Please rate us on iTunes. The Big Electron. Thank you for listening. And today we have a great show for you today.、Uh, but before we get started, I just want to remind you that if you have any comments or, or suggestions or questions, you can reach us to、um, here on studio at 573 882 You can also find us on Facebook where we are, The Big Electron, or you can send us an email to thebigelectron.kcou at gmail.com. And if you happen to be listening to us from the podcast, thank you. Please rate us. <laughs> Why do we need to be rated anyway? You know, it makes us higher up in the charts. So that people can listen. So that more people can listen so to us. So that、it. more people can find us and listen to us. And,、um, and listen to the award winning show. Yeah. <laughs> I never get sick of saying that. <laughs> It's only been a week, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, today、uh, we are doing one of our favorites, and that is、uh, science news, because、yeah. we haven't done that in a while. And、um, since it's only me and Anahita, we decided to bring back one of our favorite guests,、uh, Miss Hallie Thompson. Hi, Hallie. Hi. So, do you want to just real quickly tell us what department you're in, who your advisor is, and like what you work on? Just、Absolutely. as a reminder. I'm also a graduate student at the University of Missouri,、uh, and I'm co advised by two people in the Department of Plant Sciences, Robert Sharp and Felix Fritchie. And I work on how corn responds to drought stress. So, some of my science news might relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having <clears throat> us. And we're chemists, and obviously, we're going to start with a chemistry news because why not? <laughs> yeah, but it has a little bit of a twist to it. Okay. So,、um, what I'm going to talk about is chemist ants. So, within a colony, you know, ants have a lot of different functions depending、mm-hmm. on what kind of ant, or I guess where they lie in the ant. Hierarchy. <laughs> <laughs>、um, and so recently, scientists、uh, have found that there are chemist ants. And these ants、um, are wood ants that protect their colonies from disease by、uh, making antibiotic cocktails. Okay. So, so do, do they wear a lab coat too? A very tiny one. <laughs> <laughs> so cute. Are there pictures of that? You know,、uh, if you give me a minute with Photoshop, there will be, <laughs> but currently, no.、Um, so, an evolutionary biologist at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland, Dr. Michelle, yep, I shouldn't have done this, Chapusay? Chapusat? Chapusat? I don't know. I, you know, it's this French. Or it, origin it, names it, that I destroyed. Evolutionary、me. biologist in this university in Switzerland.、Uh-huh. 
he uh, thought that he saw that these wood ants that live in these huge colonies that have hundreds of thousands of ants, that they were doing something interesting to keep from disease being spread amongst these huge numbers. So it's kind of like if you just have a bunch of people in a room and one person's sick, you know everybody's going to get sick like with enough time. Like kids in school. Exactly. <laughs> so a lot of ant species handle this um, being crammed together by avoiding, I'm sorry, they avoid epidemics by grooming each other and cleaning their colonies. But these wood ants <laughs> did something a little extra, which is that they collect antimicrobial tree resin and bring it back to their nests. Plants. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this tree resin, um, you know, it has antibacterial properties. But what was really interesting is that when it's paired with the formic acid that they produce, so that's what makes a bite hurt. That the ants produce. Yeah, that the ants oh. produce. The combination of this tree resin and the formic acid um, was found to keep keep colonies fungus-free. So, what sci the scientists at this university in Switzerland looked at was they compared tree resin alone in a Petri dish covered with fungus, and then they had... Uh, tree resin and this formic acid produced by the ants in another petri dish covered with fungus and after two weeks the formic acid and tree resin together resulted in 50 percent less fungus growth mm -hmm. so it inhibits the fungus and then there's this antimicrobial you know effect of keeping the ants healthy that makes a lot of sense yeah. Pretty I cool. guess they also have to prevent the sea disease, just yeah. like any other animal, including us. Absolutely. And so where the chemist part comes in is that the researchers were able to confirm that the ants were actively mixing those materials together. How do that they it, confirm? That's a great question. <laughs> Designing that experiment. <laughs> um, yeah. How do they confirm that? So I know what your spirit animal would be. What is it? You're a chemist ant. I'm a chemist ant, <laughs> yeah. So I guess what they do is they actually just kind of find that they exploit the tree for that resin and then they combine it with their poison uh -huh. and then bring it back. Mm. So I guess that's how they're actively mixing it together. Mm -hmm. They're like, okay, well, I could bring this back. But I'm going to also, I guess, spit on it. <laughs> However, they transmit formic acid. And this is, I'm guessing this is something that they learned over time. I mean, after all, this professor is an evolutionary biologist. Yeah. So I'm guessing they were looking at some evolution markers or whatever mm -hmm. for how ants have been um, evolving yeah, they were Throughout probably the years. comparing other species of ants, maybe, and seeing what they do. I mean, they said that at the beginning, is that mm. some others don't do that. They may have been part of how they were right. looking into it. And apparently, um, there are a lot of groups that look into this, um, these synergistic effects. It's called defensive mixology. Hmm. Yeah. So, little well, chemist ants. Nice whole new area of study. Yeah. <laughs> And it's and it's all animals, right? They call defensive mixology for for animals. For animals, mm -hmm. how they 
mix things for defense purposes. And so technically you can think of how we mix chemicals to make different drugs. Defensive mm. mixology also, because we're animals. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's pretty neat. Since we're on the realm of animals, um, Hallie, you have some some other animal thing. <laughs> so I have a another insect story, and I also have a plant story that mm-hmm. I think go together. Um, they're both pretty recent stories, and both about endangered or extinct, nearly mm-hmm. extinct species. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the American chestnut tree, and then also about the monarch butterfly. Uh, many of you might be familiar with the monarch with the monarch butterfly, and it's been in the news quite a bit in the last few months. In so far as people talking about planting uh, milkweed in order to stop the reduction in monarch butterfly populations, um, and this is particularly important uh, because we've observed that the decrease in population of monarch butterflies has been a lot faster in the past few years. And we thought, um, researchers thought, that milkweed losses explained the mm. reduction in population of monarch butterflies. But this article... Wait, that, can you say that word slowly? Milkweed? Milkweed, yes. Milkweed. That's, yeah, that's what? the common name. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a plant. It is. It is a plant. And people have been planting it in their backyards, along roads, uh-huh. and in other areas in order to have it in the ecosystem for the monarch butterflies. Because the monarch butterflies specifically have a mutualistic, I don't know if it's technically mutualistic relationship with milkweed, but they're thought to require milkweed Okay. Mm. okay. for their survival. Gotcha. So people have been planting it all mm-hmm. over, and you may you may see it, and you know the suburbs are in areas and rural areas. It's kind of people have been planting it a lot, um, but what they're finding is that it's not just due to that. Um, researchers out of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign hmm. are actually debunking decades of studies on monarchs and finding that there may be more complex factors going on because hmm. the monarchs move. They go from... Right, they migrate. They migrate, yeah. And so they go from here in Missouri mm-hmm. down to parts of Mexico. Yeah. And so there may be other factors that they haven't been able to include in their design um, with regard to experiments on this hmm. because it's such a complex phenomenon The yeah, moving this, every year. Yeah, uh, that they're having trouble pinning down exactly what's happening. And I can imagine with like climate change, that's only making it harder. Throwing in some more factors. Yeah, there. yeah, definitely. And so this this article is really just about how um, there may be new things coming out in the hmm. future about how to actually stop the reduction in population of monarchs, mm-hmm. um, and there may be things that homeowners and landowners can do in their everyday life and that they could plant in their side yard and help with the population hmm. of monarch butterflies. So it's kind of a cool little action item that we could That's awesome. maybe do in the future. Um, so more on uh, species that are extinct or endangered, and these are very endangered species, the American chestnut. Hmm. Um, and I know that a lot of people probably have never seen an American chestnut because it was about a century ago whenever the American chestnut... Oh, you seem very... (laughs) Jackie just made a sigh. She was like, oh. It's a long time for something to be... Yeah. It has been a long time. Not as long as the mammoth, but... Right. (laughs) 
Right, but if something's gone for 100 years, I assume it's gone. Right. So the thing, it's not completely gone. It's Mm -hmm. gone in most wild populations in the levels that it was. And the American chestnut apparently can still grow. It just doesn't get very tall. Mm -hmm. It, It... it's a very short in stature whenever it does actually grow, um, and it's not successful in you know its standard life cycle of reproduction and and within the ecosystem mm-hmm. how the American chestnut was a hundred years ago. Hmm. Okay. So it's a very different plant, and that's all due to a blight, um, which is also a fungus. So yeah. we're going back to funguses now, <laughs> which we were talking with about the ants. Um, is this blight? completely wiped out the population about 100 years ago and we're still not clear on the exact reasons why we just know that the american chestnut itself was very sensitive to it Mm -hmm. and so this this research group is now growing a lot of little seedlings that they have added a gene to Mm -hmm. that enables them to be tolerant to the blight oh that's fantastic and so the idea is eventually and plants obviously take a really long time to grow so this is like eventually uh, they will be able to distribute these to the public, and you'll be able to grow these. Oh. Yeah. That's awesome. So we'll be able to increase the population again, and it wouldn't just be to the public. It would obviously be in parks right. and national mm-hmm. wildlife areas. Mm-hmm. So do they? Cool. Do you know, do you know uh, what kind of climate they require to grow and be successful in their life? That's a really good question, Jackie. I assume we have it in the U.S., but... <laughs> well, yeah, otherwise it wouldn't be called American chestnut. Yeah, I'm actually not that familiar with the climate they need. I'm more familiar with the near-extinction near event. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I am not a tree biologist. So, so, so the ones that have been kept alive, are they, like, in specific areas or... So this is in upstate New York where okay. they're doing this research. I was going to say that I think the tree family is the beech family, and those are native to eastern North America. Mm-hmm. So especially northeastern North, like America. <laughs> yes. So New York would make sense. And I know that the American chestnut did grow into areas close to Missouri as well. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it had a little broader range mm-hmm. originally, but I'm not sure how... It does. Broad the range was. I'm looking at a map of its range. It looks like it did span the east. Oh, okay. Like it got. Yeah, there's a little bit in Missouri. Um, yeah. It's most of the Appalachian right. area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, I'm learning something. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I love reading science that's out of my area. I always yeah. end up learning a little bit of something. Um, so the idea is with both of these articles I brought up, uh, there could be uh, citizen action on this. You could plant whatever could help save the monarchs. Uh, you could plant one of these new varieties mm-hmm. of American chestnut um, and start to really be involved in the ecosystem, which is mm-hmm. kind of cool. Have you guys heard about the Cheerios started giving out wildflowers? wildflower seeds no i saw it yesterday yeah i I saw it yesterday on facebook a lot of people started popping it up it's a campaign that they've started that you can ask for free wildflower seeds and it's supposed to save the honeybees because they're going extinct and And we need bees for honey nut cheerios (laughs) and for many things Cheerios. But that's what cheerios (laughs) is probably thinking about so the the cereal company is giving you Wildflowered seeds, uh-huh. because they want to keep making honey nut Cheerios. Yeah, that makes sense. So they're trying to save the bees, uh huh, by giving out anyone who fills out this form on their website, I guess, 
um, a pack of seeds to plant. So that's another another way that we can save <laughs> get involved. Save, yeah, some more citizen science. Well, what if you like live it. in the desert though? You get no seeds. <laughs> you can well, try. <laughs> I wonder if it does, if they limit it based on if you're living in an area where it's likely. Because, I mean, you're right. In a desert, it's not going to happen. Or Alaska. Right. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. They might as well no. save their money. Yeah. It's also sort of an education thing, too, though. Because anybody signing up for it's going to be like, wow why is Cheerios doing this? Yeah. And maybe look into it a little more. Which like, would be great. Like we're thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So we're talking about endangered species, um, either extent or near extension. And there's another way that the things also get extinct, not only via natural causes or whatever, but also by some illegal thing, things like, mm -hmm. like poaching, right? Yes, like poaching. And so, obviously, uh, when you think about poaching, I think about rhinos in Africa. Uh -huh. And um, obviously, that's a huge problem. So, uh, in Malawi and the Luande National Park, they have come up with a technological uh, solution to this problem, which is that they have released a fleet of drones to track if poachers are coming into their area. Uh -huh. <laughs> so uh, pretty much the idea is to scare away any poachers using drones. Now these are drones as we think about them, as the kind of more toy-like drones. Mm -hmm. They're they're more robust than you would buy for like 20 or $30 or probably $10,000, <laughs> but it's not... Um, so they're, they're big. They're and, not military have... drones, as you would okay. think about them, is what I'm getting at. Uh -huh. They're these drones. They're big drones that are for surveillance purposes, uh -huh. specifically. Mm -hmm. And so Luande has, in since 2014, they lost two, two rhinos and 50 elephants. <gasps> so that's... That's huge. That's a lot yeah. of elephants. Yeah. No, I'm a little concerned about the elephants. And they keep on finding um, tens of thousands of illegal snares, and they make, uh, and and they use electric fencing, and they've also relocated a lot of their elephants. Mm -hmm. But it just seemed to not be enough, so they got a grant from Google to test these drones as a method of uh, surveillance and, you know, pretty much scaring away poachers. Mm -hmm. Now I have a question. Sure. Do you think Google gets information for Google Earth from That's the drones as well? A good I'm just question. so curious because I know there are areas in Africa and, well, just places that are less populated generally where they don't have data for Google Earth. So I'm wondering. So this article I'm reading doesn't specifically talk, speak to that, but yeah, I don't, um, sense. I could see that as being like a synergistic thing. We'll give you this money if you help us fill in some of these gaps. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Do do two really good things at once. Start filling in the map and save the rhinos yeah. and the elephants. Mm -hmm. And so this is incredibly interesting because unmanned aerial vehicles or drones are illegal in a lot of Africa. So the fact that they're letting in a drone and it's a license, it's the first licensed drone in Africa. Wow. Is really great. It's showing that, you know, this these laws around technology are starting to see where the technology can benefit them instead of just hurt them. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's pretty neat. Yeah. So how does it, how do they like 
think that they can scare them away. Like well, be, because it's because it's illegal and this is the first legal thing and then like what what other method of action once you see that someone is around? So do they deploy people? Well not deploy, but <laughs> Yes, so they can actually <laughs> make people. more effect uh they can be more effective in arrests. So they can get footage of poachers um, they can locate the poachers easily because these drones can be equipped with GPS, which Google would probably really like. And so they can say, okay, right now there is a person in this area. And someone can say, okay, well, we don't have anyone in that area, so poacher. Let's go mm -hmm. in. Oh. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and uh, this idea of using drones isn't new. Right. But, again, this is the first one that can... You know, it's been licensed to be in this area of Africa. Mm -hmm. And um, drones have been, they've, uh, conservationists have been trying to get drones in the area also to monitor the animals. Right. Mm -hmm. So if an elephant is hurt, they know. They could, they mm -hmm. can actually do something about it Absolutely. instead of finding a dead elephant later, which would be devastating mm -hmm. for me, especially. I yeah. love elephants so much. <laughs> elephants and giraffes. I don't know giraffes what it is about so them. Cute. They're just my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> me too. So, yeah. Oh, well, that's pretty neat. Okay, so with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Big Electron on KCOU 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening. Um, so we're talking about science news, and we have a very interesting article uh, that Hallie will touch on. Um, but before we get to that, I think it's very important that we mention the difference between two words that um, – or two buzzwords that have been going around. Um, and that is the difference between weather and climate. Um, and I didn't know this, but – Basically, the way you can talk about weather and climate is by a measure of time. And so when when people say weather or, or when scientists uh, say weather, what they mean is um, basically the, the way that the atmosphere is behaving, um, mainly with respect to effects uh, that the effects that it has on on life and, and human activities. Um, but weather is. Uh, consists of, of a short time of period of changes in that atmosphere. So, for example, um, you can think of changes in temperature and humidity, uh, rain, um, clouds, wind, um, atmospheric pressure, and, and things, things like that. Um, whereas when, when you think of climate, climate is the average of weather over a time or space, uh, time and space. So, so for example, uh, weather, since it's, it's short things, what you can think of is like a hot day where we have some thunderstorms or a cold day with a little bit of sleet. Um, and then climate, um, since it's on average, is something bigger, uh, longer, um, you can think of as a very hot summer or as a very rainy summer or as um, a very cold winter and so on and so forth. So the things um, we expect to see out of... Yeah, or, or what you've seen over that extended period of time. Okay. So like for, for the three months, what was uh, the climate for uh, the spring was 
X, you know. Um, and whereas, whereas weather, it's things that happen on a day-to-day basis um, or even shorter period of times. Like, you know, we have tornado warnings. Hour to hour. Hour to hour. Minute to minute. Even. Basically, basically. So, um, so that's kind of the difference uh, when we talk about weather and climate. That makes sense. Yeah. That's a good introduction to it. Uh, so one of the interesting things is as a plant scientist who thinks a lot about farmers, uh, the way farmers make their decision, like where they're going to have their land, where they're going to farm, and more long-term things like that is based on climate. You know, They know, uh-huh. I want to farm here because the climate is appropriate. It's going to be warm in the summer and it's going to rain this much, but they make decisions in the spring. When am I going to plant? And what am I going to plant based on weather? So it's kind of interesting how familiar farmers are with the interaction between climate and weather and just how important it is for us to be able to know the weather and Mm -hmm. to be able to make decisions based on weather and climate. And that's this article is actually uh, some researchers from Yale University that Mm -hmm. are actually mathematicians that are sort of starting Mm -hmm. to tackle this thing of what is the intersection of climate and weather Hmm. And because one is such a long time scale and one is a very short time scale. And is there some sort of spot there in between where we can study, you know, those more medium time scales to start to figure out what's going to happen and why it's going to be really important for, you know, that farmer or for humanity more generally. Uh-huh. So it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. They're trying to fingerprint weather, I guess, is the best way to put it. Fingerprint? Fingerprint, Mm. yeah. So they're trying to figure out these... The, like, signature of what causes different weather to exist. Yeah, and so less than a climate average, it's more of a detailed look at it, but Mm. not such a detailed look that it's weather, if that makes sense. Gotcha. So somewhere in between Mm -hmm. what we've defined as climate, what we've defined as weather. Absolutely, absolutely. Cool. Yeah, and the idea is that this would help us whenever we're starting to, you know, see more changes, like this last February. It's been so warm in so many places Uh that they're starting to say, well, a lot of our current models are becoming untenable. Hmm. We're not able to use them anymore for predictions. And so how do we start to figure out how to maybe change those models if we need to in the future? Hmm. So. So it's helping us address climate change into like understanding what will happen? Yeah, so it's it's a little more short-term than that. Okay. Um, but it, it's definitely for consumer and producer decisions and agriculture space and just more generally for, you know, weather predictions, that type of stuff. But mm-hmm. it's very early stage because it's, you mm-hmm. know, mathematicians looking at this and trying to figure out how they can start to model this. So it's fascinating because I'm yeah. always confused myself <laughs> about climate and weather as, you know, as somebody who's constantly, I have nine weather apps on my phone. Um, <laughs> it's, what? It's, it's excessive. I love, I love weather. I think weather is fascinating. I'm a drought physiologist. So like I study how drought affects plants, but weather is so important that I'm kind of obsessed with it. <laughs> there, you're telling me that there are more than five apps of, of weather. Yes. Yes, there are. I, that like does it blow your mind? <laughs> like that we can use in every region, or, or oh my god! I call my that. folder environment. <laughs> like, oh, so it's like seeing different types of weather things mm-hmm. okay. and radar and other, mm-hmm. stuff. and other stuff. Yeah. Okay. So I guess radar is an interesting 
way to start to visualize these fingerprints as well. So there's a lot of different data that we have available, I guess, is a a great point to make with this is we all have it at our fingertips on our phones. Imagine what these researchers have at their fingertips. Mm -hmm. All of this radar data, um, temperature data from all over the world, and not to mention humidity and all of these other factors that they can start to play with and figure out what's really happening. Yeah. So... Okay, well, since we're kind of talking about environmental things, I'm going to do a little bit of a shift, but um, still environmental, Um, which is that chemists have found a way to use um, like butterfly wings or peacock feathers or opal to um, inspire a greener way to dye our clothes. So... Dyes and pigments are what are known as chemical colors. And so they, we see what color they are because they absorb um, selectively and reflect the color, the wavelength that we see as that color. So green has a specific wavelength. So it'll absorb everything else and reflect green if you have a green shirt on. So we always see the reflected color. Right. However, that's not the way that peacock feathers or butterfly wings work. Okay, so peacock feathers, what color are they? Every color. Yeah, that's a good that's a good answer. They're actually brown. Oh. Yeah, so their their color is actually brown. However, they um, utilize structural color or physical color, which means that it's um, they have light modifying micro and nanostructures within the feathers that's or really within cool. the wings that make us see these iridescent colors. Isn't that nuts? Yeah. So it's the structure, the actual structure modifies or bends the light in a way that we can, we see all these, like this rainbow of peacock colors in their feathers. So yeah, isn't that really cool? (laughs) Like that in itself, I think is awesome. Mm -hmm. Done. (laughs) But, But so scientists are starting to work on using these physical colors to make um, crystals in a liquid solution that you can use to color clothing. And that will cut down on dyes and pigments being dumped after um, after clothing is, is colored. Wow. Yeah, so it's this, it's a colloidal mixture, so it's like crystals in a liquid solution. And um, these... Crystals are made so that they bend light so you can get different colors. And depending on how they bend light, you'll get a different color. They're supposed to last longer after washing so you won't get fading as much. I was going to ask that. Because it's an actual, like, chemical bond that's happening to bond these crystals to the clothing. So it won't, it's not, they won't wash out in the same way. They're more, um, it's more click together that's not what i'm trying to say more stable more stable yeah it's more bound together it's not just going to eventually you know fade away that's good news for my laundry yes (laughs) (laughs) and it's you know really good news for the environment so a lot of dyes a lot of pigments are entering streams and rivers Mm -hmm. especially due to fast fashion so um yeah so it's a it's a health hazard so to what, be in these areas where fast fashion happens. What's fast fashion? Let's it's break this down a little. Very cheap, high volume, high turnover fashion industry. So um, 
a lot of countries that produced fast fast fashion, they're under bad working conditions and low pay and um but they and that's where we get really cheap clothing that changes really quickly. So if you have a store in mind that's very cheap and has a high turnover of what they sell, that's a fast fashion industry. And it's really most stores now, apparently. Yes. Uh, there are very few that are not fast fashion, which is kind of interesting that the entire industry is going that way. Right. Um, but one of the things with this, a good way to compare it is in the 50s, you would buy a dress or two and wear them for years. Right. Whereas now we say, well, I wore this dress to a wedding and it's in pictures and I don't know <laughs> if I want to wear it again. Right. Um, and so that's a really good example of fast fashion in our society or i went to a conference and you know you're going to another conference where you know the same people are going to be there so right. <laughs> it's a cultural thing so it's interesting that this is starting to address address some of those so um the authors of this study are actually from universities in china so mm. where they would see the day-to-day -day person is more likely to see an impact on a benefit from mm -hmm. on the benefits of this because, absolutely because that's the region of the world where fast fashion is produced mm -hmm. so that's where most of these dyes and pigments are being dumped mm. so yeah uh, from the process from the it's process. happening not from the washing and, no uh, it's from the process of actually making them so yeah we we get it i mean as a consumer in America, we will, as we rinse, as we wash our clothes, there'll be pigment and dye leaving, mm -hmm. but the process of making the clothes is where they're seeing the biggest environmental impact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's pretty neat. Yeah, so chemistry helping out fashion and hopefully helping out the people living amazing around where the fashion is made. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. So is this just peacock feathers that have this structural? I'm so curious. What else has this? Um, so know? this article says... Also, butterfly wings and opals, okay. but I know that there's more than just that. I think those are just the most common. Okay. I mean, peacock feather is a really good one because it's brown. Yeah, like, and it does And it does not look brown. Not look brown. <laughs> no, I actually have one sitting on my desk because I love them so much. So yeah. that's why I was like, rainbow. <laughs> yeah. There are wow. also some uh, cuts of meat have structural coloration. Yep. Supposedly. Yeah. No, I can see that if yeah. you if you have a steak and like a raw steak and mm -hmm. you can see that in the like when the light hits it. That's yeah. crazy. Wow, I've never thought about that before. <laughs> Oil on a puddle sometimes looks like that too. I don't know if right. that's the same thing, but <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know about that one, but yeah. No, I, I would question anything that kinda has an iridescent huh. iridescent thing. I know that structural coloration has been experimented for uh, camouflage. But I don't know if it's used. I don't know how that study went. Right. But I do know that because animals use it for camouflage sometimes. Right. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Now I'm going to go look up more of this. Yeah. All right. Well, I, um, we're going to go on a quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to The Big Electron. Thank you for listening. Um, we're talking about uh, cool science news and, and advancements in, um, in science that can potentially improve uh, the environment and, and our daily lives. And um, in, when, when it comes to improvement in our daily lives, I think um, something that uh, we're going to start seeing more and more about is this 
new area of, of biology slash, I don't know, human health slash many other things. Oh, my um, God. It's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is uh, this area called uh, of organoids. Um, so organoids are 3D structures similar to human tissues um, that scientists have created. Um, so so what you are can we kind of think of it as miniature... Mini organs. Mm-hmm. Like um, there's, uh, there's reports of, uh, or there's been... Uh, uh, scientific research where organoids have been made, um, and this includes like many livers, pancreases, stomachs, hearts, kidneys, um, even like mammary glands, um, and even the brain um, at some point. So wow. it's it's this it's this it's this area of research that is slowly um, in increasing, but. Um, you know, there's still obviously a lot of a lot of research uh, that needs to be done. So I guess that the first question that, that you want to ask is, um, are organoids really miniature organs? And the answer is no. Um, but you have this uh, combination of cells uh, that could resemble that resembles organs in, in many ways. Um, obviously, they lack um, certain features like blood flow or blood vessels mm-hmm. um, that can nourish uh, the internal tissue and, and make the organ um, get bigger. So in this case, no, you don't, we don't have, you know, a full developed heart or liver or whatever, but something that in the inside, uh, when you look at it via mi- a microscope, uh, it resembles a lot like the cells of a kidney or a liver or whatever. Um, so why why did this even get started? Um, we had last week we had Ronnie talking about how she studies cancer cells, yeah. um, but she has the cells on um, on uh, a kind of like a two D culture, um, and it would be better if we had the full three D version of of something. Um, and so this is where um, thanks to three D printing and just with the advancement of uh, of science, um, now we are able to grow um, these things called organoids and kind of make a mini organ um, in, so a, in a, a more, 3D structure. So it's a more true system to test on and uh, gain information on. Right, right, absolutely. Um, so, so how how are organoids made? Make yeah, uh, that's made. my question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they they all begin with stem cells, of course, mm. um, and they grow in precise culture conditions that uh, allow them to differentiate into whatever organ, organ and quote marks um, um, that, that would then self-organize and make this this thing. Um, of course. Uh, depending what source of stem cells you have, it would make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, we don't know yet um, exactly how we can bring one thing, um, one stem cell into a specific organ. But, um, you know, if 
you can make something uh, that in theory can become any cell type. So if you have pluripotent stem cells, uh, which are isolated from like an embryo, human okay. embryo, <laughs> uh, in, in theory, they can become any, any cell type uh, in the body. Hmm. Uh, and... And if you have other ones, then those are a little bit more more specific. So you can also get um, adult ones, uh, adult stem cells, and those are um, those would be like specifically for for a couple of things. Um, you wouldn't be able to grow as as much. Um, and a lot of the where the research this where where this is happening is in children's hospitals. Um, so uh, a developmental biologist at Cincinnati. Children's Hospital Medical Center, um, James Well, he's um, <clears throat> one of these main key players in, in developing um, organoids. Mm-hmm. Um, and what he's looking at, it's, for example, uh, a congenital defect um, that you can see develop right before your eyes, um, before oh, it even, wow. um, so that you can kind of treat it and then treat the patients that that potentially have that. So you get the stem cells mm-hmm. from the patient? No. No. No, this this would be stem cells from somewhere else. Okay. I don't know where. I was exactly. Just, I, I was just curious cuz I was just doing a little googling on uh-huh. organoids and apparently they're using it for personalized medicine mm-hmm. in oh, some places awesome. as like a pilot where they're they would take like I guess a biopsy of some sort so just a sample from an area they think that you might have a disease or from mm-hmm. a specific area to target a test and then they grow organoids from that yeah. sample and then they can tell certain traits from the cells they've taken from you via like organoid processes and I actually don't understand this at all but it's really <laughs> interesting and that way they can do a more like individualized medicine for you so instead right. of saying Hallie you're exactly like the rest of the population we know mm-hmm. what's going on they'll actually take my cells Mm -hmm. and they can figure out what's going on so that's a kind of cool application yeah and this one um study i'm looking at it said that it took they were looking at cerebral um organoids Mm -hmm. so after 10 days it only took 10 days to start to see neurons developed and 30 days it displayed regions similar to parts of the brain However, it lacks a blood supply, as you said, mm-hmm. so yeah. they can, they only grow to be about four millimeters across, so that's tiny, oh, that's so yeah. but that's huge for neurons. And that's huge for um, also pandemics. So we were yeah. talking about, um, yes, they can be personalized medicine, but if you remember a couple of years ago, or um, we had the Zika virus, mm-hmm. yeah. um, and actually they used organoids to grow brain um, oh, to, be to, able to, to look, look at. at to look at their growing brain, um, and this is how they found out that the virus uh, hijacks and kills neural cells. Wow, that's so. so these are is what, this, so useful. These yeah. are very useful. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, yeah, they're they're very very useful. Uh, another way that they're also looking at it is um, looking from the adult uh, stem cells is when an injury occurs. Mm. How can we use then the adult stem cells to heal uh, or to treat um, some sort of injury that that oh. happens? Hmm. Um, 
And an another application is um, using organoids uh, to see how the, the genetic differences affect the function of a specific organ and how the body might respond to a specific drug. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, uh, also in, in the clinic, um, one way that they're studying this is by looking at a mini gut, like a mini stomach. Mm -hmm. um, and what they're looking is uh, with cystic fibrosis patients. Um, and what they, they have is, okay, this uh, pharmaceutical company developed a, a medicine uh, to treat, to treat uh, cystic fibrosis. But instead of treating it uh, with the patients, what they decided to do is look at this mini gut before and see how it was um, actually, um, you know, being treated or whatever. And then the next step that they did is they actually took samples from the patients. Uh, so personalized medicine. Mm -hmm. So they <laughs> yeah. took they took uh, samples from the patients, ah. put it into this mini uh, organ or, or this organoid, um, and then they saw it develop a little bit different depending on, on the patient, of course, and mm -hmm. then they were able to, uh, then they treated it with this, with this medicine and they were able to see, well, this medicine works for X person, but not for Y person. Hmm. And we're finding that people's intestines are so different mm -hmm. within the population and even within like very small communities. And so this is a really cool application to sort of start to figure out what these differences are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, of course, this is just getting started. Um, there's, there's a lot of things that have yet to... Uh, to take place before we can even even go into that and um what a lot of scientists warn against is well this is not a true organ um and and of course um this is not a true organ because you still have your immune system you still have the, the blood supply that you need and and all those other things um but this is this is an advancement more on into okay now we're able to take the cells from this specific patient and sort of mimic um the organ in which these cells are and, and see how they respond to to a drug or just how the disease develops, um, which I think it's it's pretty cool. And so, um, yeah, organoids are are slowly getting getting in into the research area. Um, and the last question that you may ask is, well, can we use organoids to to grow organs for transplant? Yeah, I was wondering about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, the answer is not yet. Um, obviously, again, you have to work into developing the, the blood flow, have blood vessels, and a whole bunch of other things. Um, the uh, the professor, the researcher at the Cincinnati's research, um, Cincinnati's Children's Hospital says that, of course, um, that would be something that it's kind of the future goal, to, but it's... Mm -hmm goal but it's probably going to take about 10 years for this to um, to even get into a patient so um it'll be a slow process because it's just getting started but it's something that uh, again science is moving forward into into treating some patients and and having um personalized medicine as Hallie mentioned so. like three times yeah <laughs> i'm really into that <laughs> it is it's it's pretty cool it's pretty fun um so We'll see what, what we get um, in the future. So. Cool. 
Well, with that, thank you, Hallie, for joining us today. And I hope you guys enjoy the rest of your Sunday. We are the Big Electron.